This episode is brought to you by Great Minds, publishers of Wit and Wisdom. Wit and Wisdom has transformed English language arts classrooms across the nation. With knowledge-rich lessons written by former teachers and relentlessly curated selections of art and books that build knowledge, Wit and Wisdom cultivates connected knowledge of a subject from an integrated and layered approach. Along the way, students are empowered with original thought and a questioning spirit. To learn more about Wit and Wisdom, visit greatminds.org backslash English. Hi, I'm Laura Stewart from the Reading League. Welcome to Teaching, Reading, and Learning, the TRL podcast. The focus of this podcast is to elevate important conversations in the educational community in order to inform, inspire, and celebrate contributions to teaching and learning. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking to Dr. Tim Shanahan. And many of you probably know Tim from his blog or from social media. In today's podcast, we'll learn about Tim's humble beginnings in first grade, and we'll learn why it was important that Tim did not go into politics after all. So thank you for joining us and enjoy the podcast. Well, I think I speak for everyone listening in today when I say that uh, you have had such a huge impact on our collective work. And what I really appreciate about you um, is that you're always challenging us in our thinking. So thank you for joining us today, Tim. And to give you a little background for those of you who don't know Tim Shanahan, um, which I'm sure is just a handful of you out there. Um, Tim Shanahan is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he was the founding director of the UIC Center for Literacy. Previously, he was the director of reading for the Chicago Public Schools. He is an author editor of more than 200 publications on literacy education, and his research emphasizes the connections between reading and writing, literacy in the disciplines, and improvement of reading achievement. Tim is the past president of the International Literacy Association. He served as a member of the advisory board of the National Institute for Literacy under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and he helped lead the National Reading Panel, convened at the request of Congress to evaluate research on the teaching of reading, a major influence on reading education. True that. Um, he chaired two other federal research review panels, the National Literacy Panel for Language Minority Children and Youth, and the National Early Literacy Panel, and he helped write the Common Core State Standards. Uh, Tim was inducted into the Reading Hall of Fame in 2007, and he's a former first grade teacher. So again, glad to have you here. Happy to be here, Laura. Good yeah. to see you. Good to see you too. Um, so let's go back to some origins, because I know that you know people know you from your work, but maybe they don't know your origin story. So let's start with the whole, um, why did you go into education, and especially how did you become a first grade teacher? Well, I... I Initially, they certainly had no plan of becoming a teacher. I was not a, uh, a kid who loved school or stuff like that. In fact, I played hooky every chance I got. And, and uh, I was the kid who would pay no attention in class, but sit there and read a book, uh, you know, behind whatever I was supposed to be looking at. So I was not a great student. And the idea of spending my life in schools was not, not something that, uh, say, as a teenager, uh, I would have ever entertained. Um, 
I did, I, I, what I was uh, passionate about and very involved in, uh, I thought I was going to have a life in politics. And uh, I worked on a number of political campaigns in Michigan, got to know a number of fairly famous political figures in, in, my, in my work when I was 13 and 14 years old, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, worked on, uh, you know, just like I say, a number of campaigns. And then uh, so that was going to be my my life. Uh, when I went away to university, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to be involved in some kind of public service. And so at various times, I was involved in oh going into Detroit and trying you know working on uh, housing, you know that kind of stuff. But uh, at the university, the opportunity that was there was a they had a tutoring program. And you'd get on a bus and go into the inner city and, uh, you know, they'd pair you up with some kid and you would try to teach him to read. There was no preparation for it at all. It was uh, pretty much everybody doing it was a young lady uh, who intended to be a classroom teacher. And then Mm -hmm. there was me. Um, (laughs) I, I... thought this was a brilliant idea right up until the night before I was supposed to meet with this youngster for the first time, fourth grader. Um, And it dawned on me, I had no idea how to teach reading (laughs) and what to do. And and, uh, out of fear, went to the library and uh, found two books on the teaching of reading. Um, one of them, uh, Rudolph Flesch's oh my gosh. My Daddy Can't Read. Yeah, yeah. And the other one, Roach Van Allen's book on language experience approach. So I couldn't have found two more different or divergent approaches. <laughs> and I read those two books that night and really started myself on, you know, in that 24 hour period, started studying reading and, and teaching reading. Uh, you know, I. I didn't feel like I was doing anything particularly remarkable with it, that uh, youngster, but I, the other kids on the bus seemed to think I was, that uh, you know, I had a lot of interesting moves that I had picked up from reading these books and so on. And so I was kind of curious <laughs> you know, what I was doing that was uh, good. And, and there was a, a course, obviously, for education majors about how to teach reading, and I took it not as a, you know, something I needed to take, but just something that I thought would be interesting given my situation. And it was taught by an outstanding instructor who uh, had, uh, was, he'd been uh, a classroom teacher. He'd been a director of reading for the state of Delaware. He, I mean, he had a lot of experience and was probably the best reading consultant in the country at the time. And so I, I was, I lucked out in that and he kind of sucked me into it, um, you know, made it uh, my career. And so literally when I was 18 and 19 years old, I was going out with him and consulting in schools (laughs) on how to teach reading. Uh, Even to this day, he shakes his head and just can't believe he did that. (laughs) You You know, nobody in their right mind would take an 18 or 19 year old kid out with them doing consulting. I've certainly never done that. Oh my gosh. So so, it was an incredible experience. Who was that? And do you still keep in touch then? 
and not very much, but once in a while we crossed paths. Yeah. His name is Dorsey Hammond. Okay. And, and he published a certain amount, but he was much more of a, a hands-on, you know, working with schools and, and doing that kind of thing. And uh, he was just outstanding at it. Um, you know, he could get a group of teachers to do what needed to be done, uh, you know, for a group of kids and getting to watch him and, and pretty much carry his books and participate in those discussions and so on was just, you know, it was like, you know, drugs for a drug addict, you know, it, it, uh, it sucked me in. Usually people in our field come into reading, you know, they teach for a while, they become teachers, they want to teach, they don't necessarily want to teach reading, they want to teach. They teach for a while and at some point they get turned on by the idea of teaching reading and maybe they go get a master's degree in that and, and so on and so forth. Because I came into it through reading and really was doing this when I was 17 or 18 years old, I've been doing this for more than 50 years. <laughs> you know, where most people say, well, you know, I started when I was 27, you know, after I taught for four or five years, like, you know, and it, it just now for me, it was always that. Right. Uh, it was always about teaching reading. So, uh, so, so at what point did you change your major from uh, political science to education? Uh, pretty quickly after that course, not immediately, but, uh, you know, I had taken that course and about, oh, I don't know, several months later, uh, you know, that, that ended one term and I was away working in a machine shop for the summer and came back to school and the faculty was on strike. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I needed to be working or going to school. So I was, you know, kind of thrown. I, I remember one afternoon going over to the, um, student union, the student center, and, and trying to get news of, you know, should I go back home and get to work or what should I do? And I ran into that professor from the class, Dorsey Hammond, and, and we went back to his office and hung out and talked and stuff. And it, it, like I say, from then on, I kind of got sucked into it, started taking, you know, education classes and my grades went up remarkably and as did my attendance and stuff, stuff like so that. So it was kind of meant to be. It was kind of meant to be. Yeah. And, and, and I love how you said, you know, I love how you, you know, you just the night before you read these two books and went in and, and started teaching a fourth grader. It was spooky. Yeah. Uh, you know, I probably spookier from him for him than it was for me. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, it, so then, it, so was your first teaching job uh, first grade then? Uh, third grade. And then I worked my way down. Um, I was, uh, third grade, it was clear to me that there weren't men teaching younger kids. There were men teaching high school and stuff like that. That wasn't unco uncommon. And so I did think I was going to sort of lead a movement of men into that part of the profession. And obviously very few followed. <laughs> still today. Still today. But I, you know, it, it is funny. There are a handful of men who in that era were teaching first grade or second grade or kindergarten. And, you know, every so often I will meet one of them and we, you know, kind of do that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so exciting to find somebody, but it was, it was pretty rare. Uh, and, and so it made you a very odd duck. You know, there were these, the women teaching uh, those grades, uh, not only tended to be women, they tended to be women who'd been doing this for years and years. So, you know, I, th I think there were, when I was teaching first grade at the school I taught first grade at, 
I had, there were four first grade teachers and, and I think two of them had more than 25 years experience. Oh my gosh, <laughs> so yeah, for sure. You know, they so, knew yeah, what they were doing. Yeah, so, so, so connect some dots for us. How did, how did you go from first grade to UIC Chicago and Chicago Public Schools to National Reading Panel? I mean, how, what kind of were the stepping stones along the way? Yeah, well, always uh, trying to do one thing and ends up doing another. I, I took my master's at night. I mean, they, the university had offered, you know, if I wanted a, an assistantship, I could do it full time. But I really, I did it like most teachers do it. You know, you teach during the day and go to school at night. And, and uh, I felt like I needed that teaching experience. I really wanted to be doing that. But I was fascinated by the the research information that you were picking up at the university and i i i didn't see myself as a college professor or anything like that but i did think maybe i could be something like a curriculum director for a school district and i could oversee the reading program and that kind of thing I, that was really so i was going to go get a phd for that and uh the program i got into at the university of delaware I think there were, that year, there were something like eight uh, doctoral students. Seven of them wanted to be a college professor, and I wanted to be a curriculum director. Uh, you know, and they, I think they all had, um, all or all but one of them had master's degrees in psychology, not in education, which was quite typical at the time. It's, it's less typical now. And uh, I clearly didn't belong there. They all knew so much than I did about anything we were studying. But over time, my experiences as a teacher, you know, started to kick in. I, I had a, maybe a better sense of what we needed to know. Um, maybe I had some better questions in, in some, you know, they had maybe hotter questions at the time, but not questions that were going to matter uh, in terms of instruction as much, um, which, you know, so you get something from that. <laughs> So, so, you know, I, I ended up, I, almost all of them ended up doing something different than becoming professors. And I ended up becoming a professor and spending my career doing that. <laughs> and, and it was lucky, uh, you know, it, it, I, I, it was so made for that kind of a job and that kind of life. Uh, a lot of people figure that out later than I did. I was very lucky to, to hit on that early and, uh, you know, to spend really my whole life doing that. And, right. and boy, am I glad. Um, yeah. And I, and I think you, you bring up something really important that you, you know, you grounded yourself in being a, a teacher, right? Really teaching real kids. And you, you brief, always brought that perspective to your work. Always brought that perspective to my work. And it was always, even through graduate school, and even in those early years at the university, when I was being warned that if I you know, persisted in working in the schools, I was probably not going to make tenure. Um, uh, but I, I just, I always felt that I needed to do that. I always felt like that was the purpose of the work itself. So it needed to be grounded in that. It needed to be connected at, you know, to it all the way along. And, and so, um, you know, it, it, it didn't actually interfere with my success at the university. I was managing to, to publish and, and to do the things that you need to do at a university to succeed. So it didn't really threaten me, but it was suggested to me that it was, this wasn't my best career move. Uh, but, but I think, <laughs> but, it you was. know, it, I, I will say it worked out. 
It worked, it worked, out. It worked but, out. So tell us about um, tell us about your work at UIC. Uh, at UIC, um, I was I was the lowest paid person in the entire University of Illinois system. Uh, I was uh, uh, had a, a family with you know a new baby, and then soon after a second baby, and and was just struggling to hang on. You know, I. I Really, I ended up getting a job offer from another university, which led to a really big raise, <laughs> which saved my life. Um, I, uh, unlike the other young professors, I spent a considerable amount of time teaching practicum courses. So I was actually working with the undergraduate most people wanted to teach the graduate students because those classes met once a week for three hours in the evening. Uh, if you taught the students during the day, you know, it was several more hours and it was multiple days and so on. For me, it was great because I could get my teaching done and go home and be with my kids. For them, it was, gee, there's less of this work and we can do our writing during the day and it'll all be fine. So, uh, you know, I kind of sought those courses out and taught I don't know, something like in, in over several years, maybe they offered 24 of those courses and I probably taught 20 of them, <laughs> you know, something like, it was something like that. It was, uh, uh, so, I, you know, I was, I was working with these kids who wanted to be teachers, these, again, usually young ladies and, uh, you know, especially teaching the primary reading courses and, and the introductory reading courses, uh, which, you learn a lot from, I know people, you know, graduate folks uh, put that down and it's, oh, you know, you want to get beyond that. And, and you do in terms of your writing, it, it, it helps you to have those, those, you know, doctoral students and so on who can kind of push you on that end. But having to go through the basics of teaching again and again, you refine your thinking on that. You start to see contradictions. You you find weaknesses in in what you thought, uh, and, and and so I think it uh, working on that foundational stuff that much for that many years con in a concentrated way was extremely beneficial for me. Um, well, you know, you you bring up that how you you start to question your thoughts and think about you know your own question your own thinking. And like I said at the top of this, you know, I really, I really appreciate that you do that with us. You help to challenge our thinking. And, you know, you have an incredible following with your blog and on social media. And why do you think that you've struck such a, a deep chord with people? Your work has such, struck such a deep chord. You know, I, I think there's a practicality to it that, you know, I, I hope there's a depth to it as well. But I, I think there are a lot of people who have really deep ideas and deep understandings who communicate that very poorly and uh, don't necessarily understand the implications of their work. Sometimes uh, uh, I'll understand the implications of their work better than they will. I think maybe that kind of stuff. Um, this is a field where I think a lot of people chase trends and a lot of people like to be popular. Uh, and I, I think it's easy to flatter teachers and to tell them whatever the hot thing is right now and to pretend like you know that. And I mean, I'm not going to claim that I've never 
tried to do that, but that's not my strength. Uh, I'm much better at uh, saying, well, I know you guys are really promoting phonics, but you're overdoing it because, you know, there are these other things. And, uh, you know, I've been willing to, to essentially take the punches for doing stuff like that. Um, and it's usually early on, nobody finds it terribly attractive over time. They come to appreciate it because, uh, Quite often they find out whatever they were a true believer in maybe did have the flaws that I was pointing out and that that approach would be stronger and safer if, if the practitioners actually knew about those weaknesses rather than trying to hide them. Um, so I, I, I do think over time the fact that I've, I've done that repeatedly often taking unpopular stands that turned out to be popular in the long run um, has has put me in some kind of stead where folks might say, I don't always agree with him, but I trust him. He'll, he'll tell me the truth. He'll tell me what he's thinking. He's not gonna just try to uh, make me happy. Yeah. And I think right. That, right. I mean, I, I, to I totally agree with you. And I think that, I think that level of, of challenge or that level of self-reflection in education is really needed and really wanted. Um, and do you think, what, what do people, what do you think people get wrong? about you know your stance on important topics or you know the work that you're trying to do to kind of to elevate these discussions and really bring the evidence or the research to bear there it's none of this is universal but it there are especially in social conversation on things like twitter and facebook and and those kinds of things where you can get literally hundreds of voices going there is a tendency uh, for the, the most uh, vocal people out there to be true believers in whatever it is. You know, they love reading recovery. They love independent reading. They love, uh, 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 you know, a particular phonics program. It's not enough that you teach phonics. You've got to use the ABC program. That's the, that's the only possible way kids can learn to read. And they believe those things so strongly and if you do terrible things like say, well, that's interesting. There've been three studies of that and then two of them, it didn't actually work. You know, why is that? And, and they don't look at that as, wow, he's trying to understand this. They look at this, he's trying to destroy our, our world. Uh, you know, he's a bad person. And, and so they kind of attack. Um, then what'll happen is later on, I'll get a, a letter from somebody saying, Oh, you know, I got my, I, I convinced my school district to use the such and such program. And I had no idea there'd be pushback once we adopted it. And the school board has questions and their parents groups that are coming forward. And what should we tell them? And, you know, what does the research, how can the research help us? And, you know, my, my approach is you should have been looking at the research before you adopted this. The research isn't there to give you cover for making a bad decision <laughs> it's there to help you make a decision mm -hmm. and and so you're going at this wrong uh and and they're they're absolutely right that those weaknesses are there and you should have been ready to address those and and, and if you're only going to adopt that part of, of of reading instruction what about the other kids that maybe that isn't their problem they, they for whatever reason they do well with whatever it is you're promoting and don't need what you're doing, but they struggle with some other aspect of it and you're not helping them. Yeah, so, so what, what do you think keeps us in the educational world from, from really doing that kind of 
research and looking at the research, looking at the studies and being really connected to that? What keeps us from that? Uh, you know, you mentioned that I was a member of the National Reading Panel. And when they put that panel together, and the, the notion of it was, you know, Congress was asking a panel of scientists to make a scientific judgment about what the research was saying about reading instruction. And on the panel, you know, they had a bunch of, you know, very prominent scientists, but they also had a middle school teacher, an elementary school principal, a parent of a dyslexic child. And I've got to admit, I was, um, I was offended by that. I thought that was foolish. Uh, and I was, uh, other members of the, you know, I tended to talk to those folks a lot, usually after the meetings, trying to explain to them what the discussions had been about because they wouldn't necessarily understand the science or the statistics or whatever was, was the issue that, that day. Um, and I felt terrible for these people because they were on something where they were struggling to understand what we were even talking about, or they would try to read the studies and couldn't make heads or tails of them. So evaluating what they said, you know, they just couldn't do. And I thought, well, this is terrible. They would never do this in medicine. They would never, which is not true. Uh, I, you know, when you go and look this up and track it down, and I spent the time doing that, what you find out is, oh no, if you have a panel like this in medicine, they'll put a nurse on there, they'll put patient advocates on there, they'll put those kinds of folks. But all of those folks have research training. All of them. Teachers don't have research training. Uh, principals have extremely little bits of research training. They have absolutely no idea what those research studies are telling them, how they could actually read them. Um, and that's, I think that's holding us back to a great extent. It's nationwide. And I'd love to say, well, that's true if you go to, you know, this little teacher's college that, you know, turns out 300 teachers a year. But it's not true if you go to the, you know, the Harvards and the University of Illinois and it is true. It's just as true at the Research One universities as it is at, at the teachers' colleges that don't have researchers or, you know, on their faculty. Uh, it, it's, we are a, a non-research field trying to become one. Yeah, so, 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 your, so your thinking was that um, in the National Reading Panel, having these, I guess, for lack of a better word, these practitioners on the panel um, was going to make it more difficult because they didn't understand that the charge of the panel was to look at these scientific studies. But in general, what you're saying is, yes, having practitioners is not uh, unusual in other fields, but we really need to understand the research, understand you know, quantitative versus qualitative and effect size and all those other things that really aren't part of teacher preparation. Yep. I mean, my youngest daughter's an engineer. As an undergraduate in engineering, she got more research than a typical master's student does in reading. Uh, it just, that's, that's just all there is to it. And that's true if you want to be a nurse, and that's true if you want to go into dozens of other business, any number of fields, you're going to learn, probably be forced to take a statistics class, might have to take some kind of a, a, a class in, in how we know things, you know, um, you know that, that whole notion. And, and you look at teachers edu teacher education, you look at certification requirements, 
you look at like again sort of the the personal uh, trademark that universities place on students, and the fact is in education we just haven't treated uh, making sure that these folks, not that they're gonna be scientists, but they need to be able to read science, they need to understand what the arguments are about, they need to understand what you find out from a correlational study versus an experimental study. Uh, they need to know what a meta-analysis is and, and what it tells you and what it doesn't tell you. Uh, just a whole bunch of that kind of stuff. Do you, and do you think in, the, in, in teacher preparation that hasn't been part of it because we've always looked at teaching as more of an art than a science or it's more emotional and more, you know, I know my kids better than a study or data can, can inform me? Yeah, it's probably both. I, you know, I think teaching attracts, I mean, if, if it had that, there might be some folks that, you know, if it had a science uh, requirement, there might be some folks saying, well, I don't want to go into that. You know, I, you know, maybe I will do cosmetology instead. You know, <laughs> so, you know seriously, uh, it'll be that kind of thing. I, I think, um, it's funny, the federal government has made so many moves to try to encourage schools to use research and to make research available and to, to translate research and so on and so forth and, and, and spent billions of dollars. And, and, and I think to the good, and yet they haven't made sure that the practitioners actually know what any of that means or why it's there or how, why that would be beneficial. And I think that... Uh, Maybe we're 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 starting at the wrong end, perhaps, and and that people like me should have been, you know, fighting to get uh, you know some kind of a, a a basic research course into, you know, all the undergraduate teacher majors. Uh, you know, maybe we should be doing more of that. Uh, but it it definitely attracts a group of people who say this is just about my relationship with kids, and and that's not. But and I think physicians used to do that until they figured out you could still have relationships with patients and do more good for the patient if you actually, you know, had the science behind it. And, and I, I think maybe uh, there's a, a group of teachers out there, but they're nowhere near the majority of teachers. And, mm -hmm. and so we have a big job to do there. Big job. You know, um, you mentioned the National Reading Panel. I did want to talk a little bit about that because when I think about my own self coming up as, a, as an educator, that was a real watershed moment for me was the National Reading Panel because I think I was that teacher, you know, who didn't really understand that you can bring evidence to bear in teaching reading. And so, um, you know, what maybe talk a little bit about what you believe was the impact of the National Reading Panel, um, what were the shortcomings, you know, what work still needs to be done there. Yeah, uh, you know, it, there have been such panels in other fields of study. It's the first time anything like that had ever happened in education. And it was, it came about because of the, what were called the reading wars, the, the arguments. A lot, of, that, a lot of people remember those as being arguments over, do you teach phonics or not? And that was certainly part of the argument, but it was also an argument, do you, do you use textbooks or not? Do you have a curriculum or not? <laughs> you know, it was it was really about all kinds of explicit teaching, uh, and and uh, uh, those arguments raged to such an extent that in national polls, the people's confidence in their schools was dropping. Uh, you know, they 
you know, we were starting to look like congressmen in terms of what, you know, the public thought of us. You know, these people don't even know how to teach reading. Uh, and, you know, you don't want to see your teachers saying nasty things to other teachers in public uh, because one of them uses a different method than, you know, it, it, but those kinds of things were happening. And so that's why the panel came into place in the first, initially. And it wasn't clear at all that it would have any impact, to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, nobody really knew. Um, I figured it would be controversial and, and, and so on, but it was important that at least the, the attempt be made. So, you know, we, we worked on it um, for a couple of years. The government thought this would be like the medical panels or the engineering panels, and we could answer the question in a couple months. And they would, you know, that into their laws quickly and so on, not understanding that, uh, you know, on a, on, there might be on a, on a particular issue in medicine, there might be six studies on it. <laughs> They're big studies. They might have, you know, 45,000 people in this study and there were 20,000 young women in that one. And, and you know, they, you get the panel, they sit down, they read the six studies, they talk about it, they make a decision about what it says. You know, you do the meta-analysis of it so you have the, the result. It's, it's really straightforward. I'm not going to say easy, but it's really straightforward. And they can say, there's a clear finding this way or that way, or it's not clear at all. And so this is what we recommend. In education and reading, it would, you know, okay, what, what works in reading? Well, there are thousands of studies. People are looking at all kinds of issues. Uh, and so we, it took us several meetings even to decide, what are you going to look at? <laughs> you, know, you can't look at everything. Uh, so we picked, you know, seven or eight topics that we would, you know, pursue and we, you know, went out and, and, and searched for the, you know, evidence on those topics and so on and so forth. Um, and, and so it just wasn't really, you know, it took us, like I say, about two years to do the work. Uh, Congress, uh, when they saw our plan for doing the work, actually extended our time. They wanted to shut us down, but when they saw that we had such a, an ambitious and sophisticated plan. They said, okay, we get it, go ahead, do another year. And so uh, the results came out, a um, couple newspaper articles, not a huge amount of interest um, initially, but over time uh, for, I'm gonna say a good 10 years, it really did settle down a good deal of the controversy. Uh, schools started looking for programs that included certain kinds of things. Uh, we started seeing achievement going up again, which is a, you know, a good thing. Uh, there were, you know, so there were definitely were some good things to come out of it. But as the politicians say in a democratic society, there are no final victories. It, it, this isn't, you know, oh, well, now that we know that you need to teach those things, because this is a trendy field and people do change their hair colors and their skirt lengths and their, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, gee, do you wear a pronounced lipstick or do you want one that's more subtle, all that kind of stuff. And we do the same thing when it comes, well, I taught t reading like that for the last four years. I'm bored with that. I'd like to, can't we do it some other way? Um, you know, I'm glad my physician isn't getting bored with taking those same old blood tests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I, we're, we're too faddish, too willing to just you know, go along. So 
I think for about 10 years, it really settled things down. And now over the last 10, it's been, people have been drifting away from it. You can see we're no longer raising achievement nationally and we're, things are starting to get much more diverse in how we're teaching. And, and, and so you'll see people going off in all kinds of extremes, some worse than others. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So, so you saw the, the work of the National Reading Panel really kind of brought some focus for a while, but now you kind of feel like maybe that that's kind of diverging again in terms of yeah. practice. I mean, it never shut it down entirely. It just narrowed it. Um, you'll still find people out, you know, see things on uh, you know, on net, uh, on you know, on the net, where somebody will say, "Oh, you know, the National Reading Panel found." Somebody else will say, "Oh, I never pay any attention to what that panel found." You know, they were, you know, just doing it for the money or whatever. Um, you know, there, there's a, a lot of myths about what the panel yes, did, and didn't totally. do. Yeah, you know, um, we're at our, our latest edition, as you know, uh, the Reading League Journal is going to be about the National Reading Panel twenty years later. And I know you did an interview for the, um, for the journal, and I'm really interested for people to read that because I think it's really well done in terms of looking at the findings, the corroboration of those findings, you know, where we've been and the work that's left to do. Um, so, so let me ask you this. What, what do you, in terms of, you know, our ability to raise student achievement in the area of literacy, what do you think are the biggest things that are left to do? What's left to do? Well, I mean, I, it, there are only three things you can do to improve literacy, um, you know, when you get right down to it. There are three things. And I think what you'd find if you went to any particular school or classroom or district or state, you know, you pick the, the grouping, you would find a great deal of variation in these things. And, and so what we need to do is start really following the science. The three things that really matter is how much reading instruction and experience the kids actually get. That's, that's number one. Uh, number two, what is it that you're taught? There are certain things, you know, if we were talking about history or science or the arts or any number of fields of study, it's what we teach is a matter of our values. So, you know, should we put more of our, say, our high school time into uh, physical sciences or into life sciences? Where do you think we should have more courses? You're going to find that differs by community. There are, some, there are communities that, frankly, their economy is so tied to their healthcare system that they want the kids to get more life sciences, that that would make the greatest sense, they believe. Other communities, well, gee, it's farming or mining or, you know, we think more, you know, and so it's a choice. You're learning science in both cases. It's just a decision. Is it better for kids to learn the performing arts or the plastic arts? Is it more important that they learn American history or world culture? Well, we give them some of all of those things, but where do you want the preponderance or do you want it to be equally balanced? What are you going for? Those are all values judgments. When it comes down to what do you want to teach kids so that they can be readers, it's a different thing. It isn't about what would you like to teach? What kinds of things would you like to expose kids to? It's what skills are necessary? What abilities do you have to develop? Uh, the analogy I usually use is if instead of reading, we decided to teach bicycling. What would you say if somebody said, 
I love teaching pedaling, but I hate teaching braking. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> yeah. and that's, you know, come on, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Nobody would do that. But with reading, people will do exactly that. I, you know, I don't feel comfortable teaching vocabulary. I don't like teaching phonics. Uh, I think it bores kids. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but then how do they figure out, you know, what it is they need to, to know? So I, what we teach matters. And then that third thing is how well do you deliver it? So how much of it, what do you teach, and, and how do you deliver it, the, the quality of that? Um, you know, there are ways of teaching things that are more effective than others. Um, you know, teaching phonemic awareness where the kids can actually see your mouth forming the words is really important. So that, they, you know, because part of perceiving sound is done with the eyes, not the ears. And so that, that youngster who the teacher can kind of get in it, well, these days you got a mask on <laughs> or you're doing it over Zoom. And, uh, it, it, it's, it's harder to learn it that way. And so, you know, you have to think of those kinds of things. Uh, gee, more repetitions is usually better than fewer repetitions. <laughs> and you can kind of go through, uh, you know, a whole bunch of quality things. And so when, it, 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 when you say, gee, what's missing? In a given place, it might be, they're doing a lot of really good things, but they're doing very little of anything. They're, the kids are getting an hour a day of reading instruction and uh, nobody's learning very much. Uh, you go to another place and, oh, they only, they've dropped social studies and science. They only do reading, but they're not teaching fluency. They're only teaching, you know, they don't, they don't know about that or they don't believe in that or they didn't buy a program that included that. Uh, or, gee, they're trying to do all these things, but they, they're just not very good in their delivery. They don't explain things well. They don't, uh, they don't check to see if the kids are actually learning it. They just kind of take them through. So in a, with a given teacher, a given school, a given district, you would probably come away with a different diagnosis for each. But those are three things, and they're the only three things anyone's ever found that improve achievement. And yet we don't treat, we pick the ones we like. <laughs> so yeah, so that, that kind of begs the question, if you think about those three things, you know, how do we bring coherence to that? And do you see it happening anywhere? And how, how do we bring that coherence? Is it teacher prep? Is it leadership? Is it, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the keys to bringing those pieces in a coherent way, in an accountable way into a system so that we can see the kind of results that we wanna see? Well, it's always gonna start with leadership. You always have to have somebody who has a coherent vision or some group that has a coherent vision who's going to call the shots in Chicago that person was me uh, we we increased the amount of reading instruction we made sure that everybody was teaching all of the essentials not just the parts they liked or felt most comfortable with uh, oh how do you do that well a lot of teacher a lot of professional development a lot of teacher education um, but you can do it by buying some programs. You can do it. That's not how we did it, but you can do it. Gee, these teachers aren't sure how to teach reading comprehension, but we, there's a program that can support them in that. So that they, if they follow that, they'll be stronger. Um, you, you can do that kind of thing. Um, but leadership is big. Uh, certainly professional development is big, and that has to be connected to everything you do. Uh, the... Getting parents on board is big. 
Um, I, you know, there, there are uh, just, uh, you know, a number of, of systems in a, in a school system, everything from the school board's role to the community's role, in, you know, businesses and, uh, uh, oh, in a big city like the one I'm in, uh, the zoo and the park district and, the, you know, the museums and all of them were working with us. Um, you know, it's all of those kinds of things. Certainly the parents are a big, so you need a kind of, a, you, you definitely have to start with a coherent vision. You have to take a kind of a long-term view that you need to do all of those things in the vision, but that you can, you always have to start taking one step. One step. Next, it's the next best step always, right? Yeah. And yeah. you just keep, you put in one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but that's where the leadership comes in. That's why, well, in a small district, it could be, you know, a, a superintendent or a curriculum director in a school. It could be the principal. But some some cases, the principal even cedes that territory to the, there's a second grade teacher who knows more about teaching reading than anybody in the school. And so she speaks for me. Um, you'll see things like that. Uh, so it, it can come from a lot of different places. I, I've seen places where it was the teacher's union. I mean, it, it's, you know, so it's, but you definitely have to have somebody who has that trust, respect, authority, whatever it is that will make people listen to them. You know, in my case, uh, you know, having the mayor behind me made a huge difference. You know, if people who didn't want to listen to me would go, hey, but there's a guy over his shoulder that's a lot bigger than he is, and so we better pay attention. Um, you know, in a, but again, in a, in, in a school of 300 kids or something, and you know, the principal can do incredible things or two or three teachers getting together can do incredible can things. Do amazing things. Yeah. For yeah sure. they can. Well, you know, this is, um, you, this hour has gone so fast. I just want to, uh, I want, I want to, I want to, um, learn from you. What are some of the greatest lessons that you've learned, uh, in the different roles that you've played? Um, you know, actually, I, you know, I think the, the things I just laid out, those three things, you know, they, they sound so easy. They're all really hard to do. Um, you know, I, I worked with a group of teachers out in the, the burbs here in, in the Chicago area a while back. And these teachers worked on this, you know, trying to do these things and, and, you know, to try to teach these critical things that I said they needed to. And I'm in, you know, I insist on two to three hours a day of such teaching and we gave them professional development and the district bought pro, you know, all kinds of stuff. And at the end of it, the reading achievement had gone up remarkably. They were seeing the highest scores on their tests that they'd ever seen. And the families were happier. And, and we were meeting, you know, to sort of go through all this. And, and one of the teachers stood up and she said, you know, this is really great, but I've been teaching for 25 years and I've never worked harder in my life. <laughs> she said, I don't want to go back, but you need to tell people how hard it is to do all this stuff that you make it sound so easy when you say there are those three things we have to do, but doing those is really hard. And so, you know, this, this notion of trying to keep everybody focused on those same three things, trying to make sure that those essential things are being taught and not just the ones that people feel comfortable with. 
uh, you know, making sure that if you have coaches, the coaches know how to teach each of those things and, and so on. Being able to recognize when somebody is doing it a little different and they're not hurting anything, maybe they're helping it. And when they're doing something different that maybe is pulling you down, uh, and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it's, 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 you need to maintain a focus. And so, for example, when I was working, I had a first year out, I had 114 reading coaches in Chicago. And I was responsible for not just hiring them, but training them and supervising them and so on, placing them. And, and, and I would start every, we would meet twice a month once they, they did two full weeks of training you know, 10 days of training, Monday through Friday, Monday through Friday, then they were in schools. And I pulled them out of the schools two days every month um, for additional training and meeting. And the set, every session in those first two weeks, morning and afternoon, and every session throughout the year, we always started with those three things. And so the, the trick, how do you keep people interested when you're always going to talk about the same three things every time? <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I would get them presenting it. I would get right, them. right. I do it as a quiz. We do it as, you know, just you had to find a way to keep saying the same things, to keep doing the same things. You know, right now we're in this COVID crisis. I would imagine healthcare workers, how many different ways can you tell people to wash their hands? How many different ways can you tell people to wear their masks? How many different times can you tell people if you feel sick and think it's respiratory, you, you really should stay home? Right. Well, Tim, Tim I, I think that's, when, that's where your experience as a first grade teacher really came in handy. <laughs> oh, that, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, because in fact, if you're teaching a group of six-year-olds, mm -hmm. no matter how well you thought you taught them today, tomorrow's a it's, different day. Tomorrow's a whole new day. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so it sounds like really, I mean, there's so many things you're, you're t so many rich ideas here. So, you know, vision, leadership, um, relentless focus, relent and, and, and like you said, always taking that next best step and just continuing to move forward and knowing that this isn't a short-term thing. This is a long-term commitment, but that's what education really is. You know, I don't think we ever, we're never going to completely get it right because we have so much that we're always learning that we're unfolding into our practice, but we have to keep taking those next best steps. We have to keep taking those next best steps. Our, our kids need it. Our nation needs it. It's you know, it really is in that sense, the vision is, is simple. It's straightforward. It's understandable. The work is hard and it's, it's, it's relentless. And there are days you don't want to go back admittedly, uh, where you just want to climb into the closet and close the door and shake. <laughs> I, I think, I think, I think I shared this with you once. I always say I have my Trader Joe moments where I just want to work at Trader Joe's, wear a Hawaiian shirt, make people happy. You know, absolutely. absolutely. So, so, so tell us, um, tell us what you're working on now. What's your work now? Oh, these days, um, I, you know, I just finished a, a paper. On, I'd been invited to do two papers, uh, both for reading research quarterly, which is one of the top, not only research journals in the field of education, but one of the top social science journals. And so normally I'd be saying, oh no, I can't take that on, but I had to take both of those on. So one I just completed and it's, I guess they've published it online. It's not in the journal yet, but it's uh, an article on the science of reading 
and it explains the kind of research that really should be the basis of the science of reading, because I think we're going a little bit wrong there. Uh, and, and a second one I've been asked to do, and I've been working on all day and want to tear my hair out, is on um, uh, tier one instruction for dyslexic students. And what does the research have to say about that? And how do we look at that research? <laughs> so, um, well, those sound terrific. Where's that, where's that second one going to be published? That'll also be in Reading Research Quarterly. That, that one, uh, Sharon Vaughn is, is editing a special issue. And uh, so you know that'll be terrific uh, with, with her leadership on it. But <laughs> I'm, as I say, tearing my hair out over my piece and hope it ends up being a good one. I think it, I, I hope it will be. At this stage, it's too early to be sure. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll definitely, we'll definitely have to uh, keep an eye out for those. So, um, you know, you, 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 you fulfilled so many roles. And, you know, when you, when you look back about, you know, the, the legacy, what do you think is one of your, just name one of your, what you think is one of the most important contributions you've made? Uh, I definitely think I've certainly played a role in the increase of our attention to uh, the science of reading uh, in, in making instructional choices and instructional decisions. I, I think, uh, you know, you say that you felt like you learned a lot from the National Reading Panel. Uh, I was using research more formally than I had ever used it before, you know, to try to steer practice. And that was a, a life-changing, a career-changing event for me. In many ways, I ended up becoming sort of the spokesperson for the National Reading Panel uh, in a way that I certainly never envisioned and the people who ran the panel <laughs> never envisioned. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, it turned out I had some ability to do that. Uh, you know that I could explain those concepts and had had led the science enough uh, on the the panel that was that was one of the roles I had played was uh, it became obvious that you needed to have some kind of a, uh, a almost like a clearinghouse that would make the scientific decisions or would bring those questions back to the whole panel so that they could actually formally vote on them. And so um, I suggested that, and they said, that'd be great, why don't you do that? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so, and and it, it, that turned out to matter. And, and so I, I just think that that whole notion of using uh, research as the basis of how we teach and what we teach and for making these policy decisions in education uh, was certainly not common before the work that I did on the National Reading Panel, and it is certainly much more common now, and not just because of me. Obviously, there have been all kinds of people playing in that, but I definitely feel like I made a real contribution to that yeah. part of it. And that well, I'll fair, fair enough. I, I asked that. you how, what contributions you made, and I appreciate you giving it to other people, but I, like I said at the beginning, I really I do appreciate that you, you, do, that you translate a lot of this for us, and you challenge us in our thinking. It's not always... It's not always easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, the, the phonics one is an interesting one because phonics people have fought for years trying to get phonics into the curriculum and keep it in the curriculum. And, and so they're very passionate about that and they have seen the science as a way of, of making that happen. And then at times they will fall in love with particular aspects of, of teaching phonics even when those don't necessarily have the same kind of scientific backing. 
and it scares them when someone says, well, you know, the studies don't actually show that, that that's needed or that that's effective. And they, you know, instead of seeing that as, wow, that's really important, we need more science on that. I wonder how else we could do this. It's, oh, you know, he's anti phonics, which is obviously not true. I've been teaching phonics for more than 50 years and uh, often uh, doing that at times when, you know, like I say, you take a punch in the nose for it. Um, so I, well, you know, and I, I yeah, I mean, and, and I think that again, that, that level of self, that challenge and that self-reflection is really important for us in our profession, you know? Yeah. So, so thank you for, um, thank you for jumping on that, um, opportunity to teach a fourth grader to read, Tim, uh, because if you hadn't taken that opportunity, we wouldn't be having this discussion today. So I really No question. He had a bigger impact on my life than I had on his. <laughs> oh my gosh. Isn't, but isn't that the truth, really? Like, you know, we think about influences on our lives as teachers, a lot of his kids, you know, kids that, kids that brought us up short and, you know, kids that challenged us and kids that made us go, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. And that would pretty much encapsulate my whole first year teaching. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No question about it. Uh, me as well. Yeah. So, um, so thank you for this. I do want to end with some, um, I'm taking a, I'm taking a, a page out of um, Brene Brown's playbook and asking some quick fire questions at the end of our podcast here. So, um, so who was your favorite teacher growing up? Favorite teacher growing up, I had a seventh grade teacher, the first ma male teacher I ever had. And, uh, uh, he uh, he was interesting. He brought a lot of uh, outside, life outside the classroom into the classroom, which was good for me. Uh, he also was tough on me because I would, you know, I was always doing something else. You know, when I was supposed to be doing work, I was writing a novel or something like yeah. that. Yeah. He, he didn't always appreciate that. Oh. But that and what was what was approach. that what was that teacher's name? Uh, Joe Heimbach. Thank you, Mr. Heimbach. Um, what was your favorite book, either as a child or, or as an adult? Oh, goodness. My favorite book. One as of your a, favorites. Uh, one of my, you know, probably the earliest reading experience that really mattered for me that I can remember, a serious reading experience. When I was, I think, in fourth grade, my mom, who didn't have much education herself, uh, insisted that I stay in after lunch for half an hour to read every day. And she took me to the library to get books. And I, got, I don't remember if we could take out four books or five books, but I took out four or five books on Abraham Lincoln. And I read them that week and have been a Lincoln fan ever since. <laughs> so that was a very... <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that that's so funny because I think you and I talked about that actually when we were sitting next to each other on that trip. Um, absolutely, I'm a huge Lincoln fan too. And, and of course we share, we're fellow Chicagoans, so we share that, but... Yeah, that's that sucked me into. Oh that's my gosh! Just one of those things. Yeah, and good for you know, good for your mom. What a great idea. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it was just you know, those were the days you'd go out and play for you know eight ten hours. Right, right. And uh, yeah, without supervision. And, you know. I know. Yeah. So I don't know what made her say he should stay in. I don't know if the teachers told her something or whatever, but she just decided, and it was a good thing good for, for me. Good for her. Good for her. So, um, so what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? My goodness, I just started a book, the name of which escapes me because it's a big, long name. It's about a fellow by the name of Jim Simon who uh, came up. He's the guy who figured out that you could um, essentially make a huge amount of money in the uh, financial markets 
using algorithms that changed everything. And he's a guy I'd never heard of before, like three or four days ago, <laughs> um, that he, he did all this um, and made hundreds of billions of dollars, one of the richest men in the world, one of the most powerful men in the world. Nobody's ever heard of him because he doesn't do interviews. He doesn't like publicity. Wow, isn't that interesting? <laughs> he was a fascinating man. And it, it, it's something like, you know, the man who, you know, figured out how to tame the markets with mathematics or some such <laughs> thing, you know, a crazy name. Yeah. Uh, but it's a wonderful book and, and oh. I'm having great fun with that. Oh, that's fun. Um, and my last question is, what are your greatest hopes for today's children? Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> right now, my greatest hope is they get to go back to school and be with other kids, to tell you the truth. I'm, I've got eight grandchildren, and, and some of them are, are handling it better than others. But yeah, I, I, we've got to get our kids back into society. They've got to get back. In the long run, obviously, what I want for our kids is I, I want them to have what I think I had, which was the freedom to make a lot of choices in my life, to uh, pick my career choices the way I did, to you know choose who I would marry, to choose you know my religion, to choose where I was going to live, and and so on. And I think literacy gives people that kind of power. Uh, it, it it allows them to know about worlds that they wouldn't know about otherwise to you know re find out what other people are thinking and feeling in ways that people usually won't reveal to each other uh and and so i you know i i you know i definitely want them to be deeply literate but not just so that they can read but so that they can actually choose the li lives that they want and, and and frankly make the mistakes that they choose to make. Yeah, yeah, literacy opens up that world and it really like does. you said gives that power and that freedom and you know there's there's such a there's such a beauty in living a literate life and uh, that's And that means so many different things to people. And, and see, that's the thing where I, I see a lot of teachers, oh yeah, you know, I love reading novels and want these kids to read novels, that's gonna be great. And I love reading novels. But that's not what I want for them. I, I you know, I, I, I taught a class I, for several years, hardest class I ever taught at the university. And it was a class, usually when we look at the relationship between literacy and society, you look at the impact of, well, you know, poor people don't learn to read as well as rich people because they don't go to as good as schools and so on. So you look at all that. But we were looking at it the opposite way. What's the impact? That literacy has on how we think and on how we relate to each other and how we work and, and how we govern ourselves and so on. And so one of the things that students were required to do was to go out and study a profession. Uh, they couldn't study teaching, they couldn't study school principals, but they could study anything else. And you know, people went and looked at you know, working at McDonald's, you know, as a counterman. They looked at uh, I had a, a young woman literally rode around in the back of a police car all night, you know, with a couple of cops, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of things. And what you'd find is uh, uh, like a woodworker, this man who made furniture, and he wasn't academic. He had no interest. But as he explained to us all of the, the different varnishes and all of the different that you had to protect yourself against, that you had to protect your workers from, that worked certain ways with certain woods, that, that required a huge amount of reading. His deeply literate life was enabling him, you know, it wasn't, oh, I go read for enjoyment. 
I read so that I can do the thing that I, I adore more than anything, which is working with wood. Um, that's a deeply literate life, but it's not the one that most of us see ourselves preparing somebody for. Mm -hmm. We should be. Mm -hmm. Very nice. That's a great. That's a great. That's a great story to end with, Tim. Thank you so much for for joining us this afternoon, and and I'm really glad you didn't become a politician. So <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> and and really, thank you for ongoing contributions, and we really really appreciate you. So thank you. Thanks so much, Laura. Good seeing you and good luck with your work as you go forward. Thanks, everybody. Oh, very much. Thanks again. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. So thank you for listening today. Um, I've known Tim for a long time, and it was just so wonderful that he could join us today. You know, we at the Reading League are committed to bringing you great conversations like this, as well as valuable resources to support you in your knowledge building and your practice. If you haven't already checked us out, www.thereadingleague.org. We have lots of great knowledge building resources on our website. Um, also, we have a very robust collection of videos on our YouTube channel. And we have a vibrant uh, Facebook community. We encourage you to join and check out all of those things. Um, also, please become a member um, with a subscription to our journal. You're going to get this uh, wonderful, valuable resource that really bridges research to practice, the Reading League Journal. So uh, again, thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.